Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt." Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes there are hard things in Scripture for us to hear and grapple with. And this story of men of God, priests, who are sinners, and more than just sinners, who are worthless men, who are evil. Father, it conjures up all kinds of questions and feelings. And Lord, I pray that as we work our way through this text, that You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you're teaching us and where our hope truly lies. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Sadly, the story of Eli's wicked sons doesn't seem too strange probably to us today. They corrupted God's worship, they extorted, they stole from God's people, they committed sexual immorality. These headlines are not ancient, they're modern. For generations, the Catholic Church has suffered with a sex abuse crisis. As Protestants, we can't just say that we've got it right and they've got it wrong, we've got our own problems, don't we? Ravi Zacharias, a very well-known evangelical apologist, 
who overseas would abuse women. Bill Gothard, a very well-respected homeschool guru who himself has been credibly accused of sexual immorality and control and abuse. Mark Driscoll up in Seattle, Washington. Hillsong, that non-denominational megachurch that has taken the world by storm, that many of your friends sing their songs in their churches. Jerry Falwell, Jr., the leader of Liberty University. Sadly, even here in the PCA, we hear stories every year of pastors who are deposed for abuse, for sexual misconduct, for financial impropriety. Now, some people from the outside of the church would look at this and say, see, this is exactly what religion is. It's just the manipulation of the marginalized. It's it's the way that people exercise power over folks who don't understand their own worth. And now all of these stories, and you see it in the Bible even, why does anybody even bother? Just go live your life. Stop submitting yourself to these men who are on power trips and are going to use that power to hurt you. I think we have to be careful of cynicism when we read passages like this. And in fact, I think there are lessons that we can learn even from this ancient story of these two evil men, Hophni and Phinehas. I want to begin with a theological lesson, or excuse me, a historical lesson Then I want to move from a historical lesson to a theological lesson. And finally, I want us to have a devotional lesson, something that I think is something that will affect our hearts as we go out this week. To understand the historical lesson that I want to tell you, I want to remind you of what Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 17. After Peter makes his great confession of faith, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A lot of us take that promise honestly to heart, and it's an enormous encouragement to us, particularly when we are praying for believers in other parts of the world, making sure that, that God knows and sees them and upholds them. But one of the things that we see down through history is that sometimes God's people don't look too pretty. And in fact, I don't think that God gives us the encouragement to think that our particular fellowship or our particular church, or our particular expression of biblical Christianity, well, this, we finally got it right. And this is going to be the one that lasts until Jesus comes back. Unfortunately, the history of Israel is a lesson for us that that's not true. These sons of Eli, they stand in a tradition, a long family line that stretches all the way back to Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses, and as the people of God are being brought out of Egypt, God says, Aaron, out of you are going to come all the priests that serve me in the tabernacle and in the temple. Aaron had four sons, 
And the expectation is from, their four, from those four sons, their male descendants would serve as the priests of God. But things went wrong pretty quickly. Almost immediately, two of his sons, Nadab and Abihu, they decided that they knew what was best. They knew how to worship God in ways that were more meaningful to them. They offered up what the Bible calls strange fire, and God took them out. Four sons down to two. One son, Ithamar, his descendants continued to serve the Lord in the tabernacle and in the temple all the way down until you get to Eli. And Eli has his two boys. But these men and this family will be cut off. We didn't read it, but after Eli confronts his sons, a prophet comes and confronts Eli. And he says to Eli that his entire family line is going to be cut off. There aren't going to be any more people from that son, Ithamar, the son of Aaron. Eli and his children are going to be the last ones. And soon we'll read in 1 Samuel that Hophni and Phinehas do die. And then Eli dies. And eventually there will be only one descendant of Eli living, and he will be cut off from the priesthood in the time of King Solomon. You think, well, maybe we've excised the cancer. Maybe we have gotten it down to the one faithful remnant. But of course, if you know Israel's story, you know that the priesthood continues to slide theologically and morally until God takes Israel into exile. And even as they go into exile through the prophet Jeremiah and through the prophet Ezekiel, God reveals to the people that his priests are in his temple sacrificing to idols. An honest assessment of church history shows this to be true in Christianity also. Churches, denominations, traditions, movements, they rise and they often fall. The fall of specific churches can often be traced to generation after generation of faithless leadership. In fact, one headline that I read recently said that in 50 years, there will not be any such thing as the Episcopal Church in the United States anymore. You may still have one or two churches that are open, but statistically, this church, which stretches back beyond our nation's founding, that has given us presidents and Supreme Court justices because of faithless leadership is essentially non-existent in 50 years. The rise of new churches, the establishment of new traditions, they, they often come out of the ashes of the churches that preceded them. We can think of the churches that come out of the Reformation, a Reformation that emerged out of the moral and theological collapse of medieval Catholicism, or even the establishment of our own denomination, the PCA. PCA come out, came out of Southern Presbyterianism's kind of liberal collapse and shift. But folks, no specific church, no denomination, not even the PCA, 
not even Redeemer, is guaranteed to last forever. There will always be a faithful witness to Christ. But it is up to every generation to renew the mission of the church. To proclaim again the central message of the Bible and to return in worship to the head of the church, to Jesus. We cannot presume upon God. We can't think, well, this is the way that it's always been. And so this is the way that it always will be. No, God has demonstrated again and again in Scripture and throughout church history that he will not hesitate to remove his lampstand from churches that can no longer be considered true and faithful bodies of Christ. That's the history. And we look at that, and as God's people, we just shake our heads and we think, how in the world did it get to be that bad? How in the world did it get to be that bad for Eli's sons? How do we prevent it from happening in our own church, in our own life? Well, this is the theological lesson. The theological lesson is this. Proximity to holiness does not convey holiness. Proximity to holiness does not convey holiness. Or to put it in a different way, just because you live in a garage doesn't make you a car. Hophni and Phineas, Eli's sons, they were as close as you could physically get to God. They were regularly called upon as priests to make sacrifices, to pray, to instruct the people, to lead the worship of God, to train up other priests. I mean, think about this. At the end of the day, as priests of God, their hands would be stained with the blood of sacrifices. They would have to wipe the suit off of their faces clear out their eyes and their sinuses because of the smoke that would ascend up from the altar. They spent their entire lives in the very place that God promised to meet His people. And verse 12 tells us they did not know the Lord. Can you think of a more damning accusation? You were where the Lord was. You were the spokesperson for the Lord. People came to you to understand the Lord. But you didn't know the Lord. The priests of God didn't know the God they served. They knew many things about that God. They probably could have led a graduate-level seminar on the Torah. They could explain in detail the differences between the, the various sacrifices that were offered every day. I'm sure that they, like some of us, they had the liturgy memorized. They didn't even have to look at their bulletins anymore. But they didn't know the Lord. 
Knowing God is, of course, more than just intellectual knowledge. We can know lots of facts about God. We can know lots of facts about His Word. But unless you have had a saving, supernatural encounter with God, you are on the outside looking in. You may be well-informed, but you are a well-informed dead person, spiritually dead. After that saving encounter with God, what we call being born again or regenerated, conversion, there must follow a decision on our parts to pursue Christ as our shepherd, to yield our lives to Him as our shepherd to follow Him and to give Him obedience. That's not what happened in Eli's family. And I think for some of us, we have to wrestle with what's going on in Eli's family. As Presbyterians, we often talk about how we believe that God works through families to see a godly heritage built up. But we must also wrestle with passages that show that election and reprobation show up in the same household. Isaac, of course, going back in the Old Testament, he had two sons. Jacob, who God loved, and Esau, who God hated. Eli, he comes across to us As a broken man, an imperfect man, not a very good priest, but he's a godly man who had two ungodly sons. Maybe something similar has happened in your own family. What do you do? What do you do if you look in your own family and see children that don't know the Lord, despite your catechism, despite bringing them to church, despite all of the prayers and the efforts that you have put in, what do you do? I think first we use Eli as a negative example. We don't do what Eli did. See, Eli, the prophet that comes to him and complains about him, Eli tells him, or that prophet tells Eli, your problem, verse 29, is that you have honored your sons more than you have honored God. That's hard for us to hear, isn't it? It's hard for us to hear because that often happens in our families. We we don't take action when it's necessary because we want to try to protect the relationship. Or maybe we think it's just a growing phase and they'll pass through it and Everything will be okay on the other end. But friends, the Lord calls us to courageously confront those we love, even when the cost seems too high to bear. So don't be like Eli. Don't honor your children more than you honor the Lord. But also, don't leave here weighed down with so much grief and anxiety. Leave here filled with hope, because as somebody once said, it ain't over till it's over. Pray 
for those prodigals. Take every effort to speak of your own need for forgiveness and mercy. Reject the temptation to point to their need for for forgiveness and mercy. It's easy for us to point and say, well, gosh, look at this sinful thing that you're doing. Certainly God's going to judge you. Or you need to, to, to... There comes a time where suddenly you have to be the one that bears witness to them about your need for mercy, your need for grace. Make it easy for them to enter into a conversation about God with you and make it just as easy for them to leave. Don't create a hostage situation, okay? If they start giving some indication that they're even willing to have that conversation with you, don't latch on so tightly that they go, gosh, that was suffocating. I can't even have a conversation with my parents. No, engage them, but engage them from a place of a need that you also have that you recognize in them. I've told you the story before about Carl Truman the uh, Presbyterian church history, he wrote a piece several years ago on the thief on the cross as an encouragement to parents of prodigal children. He said, you think about the thief on the cross and particularly the questions that he asks Jesus as he hangs there. These are not questions that would have just arisen to anybody. These are questions, Truman says, that show evidence that he was taught Israel's scriptures from an early age. And yet, this man who had given his life over to a life of sin is now at the very end of his life. But it's at the very end of his life that he recognizes his Messiah. And it's at the very end of his life that he calls out to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A historical lesson, a theological lesson. Finally, the devotional lesson that I think we need to learn from this sad story. None of us should read this story and say, I thank you, God, that I am not like Eli's sons. None of us should look at Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and just say, oh, I would never get to be that bad. I would never wander that far from God. I hate to break it to you, but all of us who know the Lord, all of us sin every day of our lives. We don't have to wait until we get out of this building to start sinning. Like the saints in heaven, we cry out when we look at our sin, how much longer, oh God, do I have to deal with this? How much longer do I have to fight against this sin? Friends, this is the glory of Romans chapter 7, where Paul looks at himself and says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. What do we do? What do we do as sinners who have to wrestle against sin to ensure that we don't end up close to the Lord in person, but far from the Lord in our faith? 
The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 says that we need to make our calling and our election sure. Sometimes we read that text and we think, well, that means that we always have to go through life doubtful. We have to go through life apprehensive, not sure if we've quite measured up, if we've done enough that when the end of time comes, God will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I actually want to challenge that, and I want you to think that God's eternal verdict on you, His eternal not guilty, your justification, that's something that actually rushes down through time and meets you in your need. It confirms you in your faith. It points you back to Jesus. And having been justified, you are now called into a life of sanctification, which is God's way of making you who you are already declared to be, making you holy in person after he declares that you are holy in Christ. And one of the means of our sanctification is the waters of baptism. Because through baptism, we are actually brought into the Christian faith, but it's not just a rite of the beginning of our faith. In fact, our larger catechism says that having been baptized, we should improve on our baptism. And that, that's weird language, right? What does it mean to improve on our baptism? It essentially means to make use of our baptism. It's not something that happened to you and now you don't think about it ever again. No, you make use of your baptism as you grow in faith. And six times in our catechism, as it talks about making use of our baptism, it points us again and again to Jesus. Remember the promises that God makes to you in your baptism. Be humble to live, to, to acknowledge your failures when you fail to live up to what God calls you to in your baptism. Grow in your assurance of God's love. Draw strength from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Live in dependence on Jesus and walk in love with all of those who have been baptized into the body of Christ. Again and again, our eyes are taken off of ourselves and they're put on Jesus. And of course, this is problem with Eli and his sons, isn't it? They became infatuated with their own needs. They became infatuated with their own desires. But our eyes have to be fixed on Christ. And that's good news for us because Jesus is the only answer to sinning servants and to worthless men. Look with me at verse 35 as we close. These are the words of the prophet that comes and condemns Eli. And after telling him that his family is done, that no one will live to be a priest in his family anymore, he gets to verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Most commentators believe that at some level, Samuel, 
is a kind of early fulfillment of this prophecy. Even though he's called a prophet, he also acts as a priest. And remember, I told you that Aaron had four sons, and after Nadab and Abihu, and now the, uh, the family of Ithamar are cut off, it's the family of Eleazar that becomes priest, and eventually there is a good priest, Zadok, who will be priest during David's lifetime and is kind of the, the pinnacle of Israel's priesthood. For those of you moms and dads that are considering names for your children, I can't wait to baptize a little Zadok someday. But verse 35 can't be fulfilled by Samuel. It can't be fulfilled completely by Zadok because there's an eternal perspective here. A sure house, the prophet talks about. A ministry that lasts forever. Who is this priest? Of course, it's Jesus. Prophet, priest, and king. The great high priest who has passed through the veil of death and now ministers in the very presence of God. This priest, we read in verse 35, needs to be a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. That is the act of righteousness of Jesus Christ. What he is doing to fulfill his vow of obedience to his Father. He is perfect in all of the places that you and I are not. And that perfect spotless righteousness, that belongs to us as a gift. To you and me and all of those who are being built up into the sure house. The household of God, the church that will never fail. As prophet, priest, and king, he ministers forever in the Father's presence. He is interceding for you today. Prophet Isaiah even tells us that our names are inscribed on the palms of his hands. He serves you so that on that last day, he can hold you. And you will see his love for you. Let's pray. Father, this priest is so unlike us. We look for our own benefit. We look for ways that we can excel and yet Jesus pours himself out for us so that we might not be lost. Oh God, pursue the scattered sheep of your flock. Those who are running headlong away from you thinking that there is a better field over that hill. Rescue those who are scared those who find themselves without hope or confidence in your love for them. And establish all of us safe and secure in the very family of God, those who are named by Christ's own name. It's in his name we pray. Amen.